We're continuing our Romans series today, Romans 7 and 8, if you want to turn there in your text. What we know is that Romans was written by whom? Sounds like, hmm, from where I'm standing, but I think I heard a Paul in there, yes. And we know that Paul wrote Romans as a theological letter to the Christians where? Rome, that was much better, good job, you're awake now. And we're starting in Romans 7 today, which as you might have guessed is situated, you're smart people, between Romans 6 and Romans 8, right? And Romans 7 does this beautiful thing because it serves as the tension between those two chapters. Romans 6, as Townley so well talked about last weekend, paints for us our position in Christ, doesn't it? Romans 6 marvelously unpacks the truth that sin, get this, no longer has mastery over the follower of Jesus Christ. And then you turn over to Romans 8, and it shows us how the Holy Spirit empowers us as followers of Jesus Christ to live a life that's pleasing, honoring to God. And then smack dab between those two chapters is Romans 7. And it holds those two in balance with these themes of law and sin and grace. Not to mention, Romans 7 really shows us the behind the scenes of this guy named Paul's salvation experience. Remember the story of Paul. Back then his name was Saul. That's exactly right. And he was confronted by the Lord on the road to where? Damascus. That's right. And it's really this dramatic conversion experience. And it isn't hard at all to imagine that Paul was a guy before he came to faith in Jesus Christ who would have talked all about how good he was. Can you picture Paul doing that? Paul was really likely a guy who boasted about how rigorously he pursued and adhered to the big L law of God, how diligently he strived after the law. And then, sort of out of nowhere, Paul was confronted by the Lord certainly, but he was also confronted with the law of God. And so you sort of step back from Romans chapter 7, and you get this big idea from the text that is, look, if you have to be good to get into heaven, how do you ever know if you've been good enough? If you have to be good to get into heaven, how in the world do you know if you've been good enough? And the answer is very, very simply, Paul's going to sketch it out for us, is that you don't. You don't know if you've been good enough. You can't be good enough because righteousness cannot ever be attained by striving after it, working for it, clawing toward it. You can't earn it. Nothing, nothing you ever do, nothing I ever do, nothing any of us will ever do can earn the righteousness of God. And so Romans 7, Paul's talking to Jewish Christians who were very, very entirely focused on keeping the capital L law of God. They were sort of boasting in the law. They thought that the law was what made them more righteous, more spiritual, more godly than anyone else. And it just sort of piles on and piles on and piles on. And here's kind of what it was like. I need a volunteer for this one. You don't have to say anything. You just have to come up. Yeah, you right in the back. Yeah, come on. Come on, blondie. Yeah, either one of you. There's two blondies right next to each. I was actually talking about her, but come on, this is good. This will be perfect. You won't have to say anything. I'm just going to ask you to stand here, and you're just going to do something. You all right with that? Here's some stairs right here. Can I introduce you to the folks? What's your name? My name's Matthew. Matthew. Nice to meet you, Matthew. If you just stand like right here. You're a 
tall drink of water, Matthew. Come stand right here. Yeah, face them. They don't bite. Don't worry. Yeah, now, so, so the law, right? The, the, there's this law deal that lots and lots of Jewish Christians, they worked really hard to adhere to. Laws like, you know, uh, do you have a garden by any chance? Um, no, we have a few planters. Yep, you have some planters, yeah. Do you ever, do you think, plant two different kinds of seeds in those planters, like two different kinds of flowers. Or, yeah, yeah you, uh, you violated the law of God. You're not supposed to do that, really, according to the law. Okay, you got those? Yeah. Okay, all right. Uh, if you ever built a house, you're supposed to put this thing around it, a, a fortification around the roof of the house. And that's so that if anyone is ever up on your roof, I don't know what they would be doing up there, but if they were ever up there and they fell off and they died, you wouldn't be liable, see. You wouldn't be uh, a sinner. Do you have a fortification on the roof of your home? Yeah, mm mm-hmm, yeah. You violated the law of God. You just hold on to that very, very carefully. Uh, uh, It doesn't look like you're quite to this one yet, uh, but uh, the law of God says that you're not supposed to shave your beard or your sideburns it'll happen someday i promise (laughs) right okay do do you like steak um yeah yeah you like steak okay yeah me too i this this one's really hard for me especially because according to god's law you're only supposed to eat your steak well done and that's gross isn't it right a well done steak you may as well just chew on your shoe just take it off and start cutting it up and taking bites. This is actually in the law of God, and you're, you know you're supposed to keep to this one. Uh, do you know that you're supposed to go and burn down the cities of people who worship other gods? Really? Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that means like Las Vegas, you're supposed to go and burn <laughs> Las Vegas down. By the way, disclaimer: don't ever do that. Didn't hear it here. No. Yeah, how, how's it going? Pretty heavy. Really? Is it getting weighty? A little bit. Oh, yeah, there's, there's, yeah, okay. Well, all right. Uh, let's see here. You're probably violating this one even right now. You're not supposed to wear, according to the law of God, uh, clothing woven together with two different kinds of fabric. Right? Yeah. No cotton and spandex mix, no cotton polyester mix, no blended pants that don't wrinkle in the dryer. Right? You do all right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's great. This is a biggie, especially in Bozeman, but uh, you're, you're never supposed to mate two different kinds of animals. Right? Never supposed to mate two different kinds of animals. You hold this? Come on. It's good. It's all Yeah, good. It's just... Right, we're, we're just now to the top of his forehead, so... It's all good. Now, that law, don't make two different kinds of animals, that means that if your dog isn't a purebred, you're violating the law of God. Right? Uh, have you ever moved to a new house and maybe it had an orchard and uh, the fruit there, you're not supposed to eat it for three years. I don't know why, but that too is the law of God. You all right? Come yeah. On. <laughs> Do you have any tattoos? Nope. Oh, good. It's good. Because the law of God says you're not supposed to. We okay? Pretty sure. <laughs> pretty. Okay, no, I'm not. It's pretty. Oh, oh gosh, that hit you in the. And there it goes. Yeah, yeah. Give him a Matt. Good, nice job. 
That, that was the point of it, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Way to go. Wow. You did remarkably well. Way to go. Now we have a heck of a mess here. Broken spines on books. He wasn't even trying to keep the law of God, was he? He wasn't even trying to keep. He was just trying to hold it up. Right? Just trying to hold up the law of God. You can't do it. You can't earn it. You can't strive for it. You can't achieve it. Because it isn't what you do. It's what Christ did. And it's only what Christ did. The law is not going to get it done for you. Look at what Paul says in Romans 7, 4-6. So my dear brothers and sisters, that's us. This is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. Like, drive a stake in the ground on that one. And now you're united with the one who was raised from the dead. That's Jesus. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. When we were controlled by our old nature, sinful desires were at work within us. The law actually aroused these evil desires that produced a harvest of sinful deeds, resulting in death. But now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the spirit of God. Paul says, look, Christian, the law is dead. You've been set free from the law. You live now and forever under the remarkable and amazing grace of God. Because the law cannot get it done. You can't get it done. And you see what the law taught, you might write this down, was that you have to do in order to be. That's a summary of what keeping the law taught. You have to do in order to be. Meaning, if you want to be righteous, if you want to be good enough, then you have to do certain things in order to be righteous, in order to be good enough. But we can't do it. No one can ever be righteous enough, no one can ever be good enough by keeping the law, trying to keep the law. The half-brother of Jesus, a guy named James, he wrote in his letter, for the person who keeps all the laws except one is just as guilty as the person who's broken all of them. You can't ever be good enough. You can't ever do enough. You can't ever be righteous enough on your own in the eyes of God. But man, we try, don't we? Lots and lots and lots of us, we try. We're just like so many of those Jewish Christians Paul was writing to. We know in our heads cognitively that we've been set free from the requirements of the law. We know that it's only about Jesus. By grace, you've been saved through faith, right? We know that. In our heads, we know that it's not what we do. It's all Jesus. We know that we can't add a single thing to our salvation. And yet, how many of us carry around these added burdens of believing that we have to do something to earn our salvation. We have to do stuff to be assured of our salvation. Whether it's being here on weekends, reading our Bible, praying, memorizing scripture, teaching in base camp, tithing, serving those on the margins of society. So many of us try and we try and we try and we try and we try. I'm gonna be good enough, I'm gonna be good enough, I'm gonna be good enough. But nothing you do will save you. Nothing. 
Now, all those behaviors I just ticked off, they're the fruit, certainly, of the life that is genuinely saved and is in the process of being transformed by Jesus Christ. But behavior will never save us. It's only grace, only grace, demonstrated through our faith that saves us. But we have a really hard time putting that down, don't we? Because we live in this culture that screams every day right in our face that we have to do in order to be. Culture has like this megaphone screaming it out. You have to do in order to be. Society tells us all the time, value, your value is measured by what you produce. Meaning that if you produce a whole lot, you're more valuable than someone who produces a little or nothing. And that kind of a value system that's based on those kinds of flawed metrics, it leaves us always striving, contending, chasing after being somebody or doing some things just because somebody tells us we need to be. It sets us really on this performance treadmill, a bit like the hamster wheel, right? And we're just running as hard as we possibly can, and we're just chasing our tails, trying to fit this mold that society has cast for us, trying to live up to these flawed metrics. All of it really can cause us quite to feel like we're not worth much anything at all. But Paul in Romans 7, it's like he stands up on this really big soapbox, And he says, Christian, you're free. You are free. Get off the performance treadmill. Step off of the hamster wheel. Let loose of the flawed metrics that you think society is measuring you by. Kick to the curb the societal expectations. You're free, Christian, from the law of God. You're free from the burden of having to do anything to be anything. You're free. And in Christ, get this, we have, you have, inestimable, inestimable value in Christ. You, in Christ, have inestimable value, not value that comes from your production. You have value value simply because of who you are, simply because of what Jesus did. Value that, frankly, none of us can fathom in its entirety. It isn't what you do, because none of us can ever do enough, none of us ever will do enough, none of us ever will be good enough. You can't work hard enough, long enough, strong. You can't. You can't do it. Romans seven fourteen to 24, listen to this. So the trouble is not with the law. It's not the law's fault. For it's spiritual and good. The trouble is actually with me, Paul says. For I am all too human. I'm a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I've discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? One of the toughest 
passages in the entirety of Scripture, and you come to the end of it, and you're like, what do we do with that, right? First of all, I think it's a good place to start to ask the question, what's Paul mean by all the eyes in there? I, 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 me, me, me. Scholars have concluded that he's using a literary device to describe this universal struggle of every follower of Jesus Christ to just simply do the right thing. Paul isn't just in that passage saying, I'm the only person in the world who struggles with this stuff. Rather, he's pointing to this universal tension in all of us as we seek to please God, as we seek to follow Jesus with our everything, with our whole life. And whenever I read that chunk of Romans 7, I get to the end of it and I go, that's exactly how I feel. Maybe you've had that experience. That's exactly how I feel so much of the time. And you're like, well, well, why? Well, because as Paul points out, we have this innate desire inside of us to do good. We want to do good. Paul expresses that. And we're frustrated in the midst of that because we want to do good. We want to please God. And you've all felt that, haven't you? You've all had those days when pleasing God isn't at all burdensome, it's not a chore, it's not a grudging thing, it's something you do with joy and cheerfulness and gratitude, and we get really, really frustrated when sin creeps in and spoils it, wrecks it. And we step back and we're like, I I don't get it. I want to do good. I want the joy and I want the cheerfulness and I want the gratitude, but the sin monster rears its head and wrecks it. And what we know to the core of our being is it's so much easier for us to do wrong than it is to do good, isn't it? We have to work really hard at doing good and wrong. It's just like right there. It's easier not to pray than to pray, right? It's easier not to be committed than to be committed. It's easier to have impure thoughts than pure thoughts. It's easier not to give than give which causes us to really step back and lament alongside Paul, what a miserable person I am. I've done it. I've said it. Maybe you have too. What a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life dominated by sin and death? Who in the world? And Paul asks the question, and he knows the answer. Romans seven twenty-five. who in the world? Thank God, he says. The answer is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's Jesus. It isn't you just work harder. It isn't you just pile more on. is isn't just you just run on the treadmill a little faster. The answer is in Christ Jesus. It's not in you. It's in Christ Jesus. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. It's only Jesus who frees us from this life that's dominated by sin and death, this life that's dominated by the performance treadmill, this life that's very frequently dominated by our pursuit and the law, on and on and on. There was a guy named Michael Breezen, and he was a brand new father. His wife was a brand new mother. It was her first ever Mother's Day, and she was a nurse. And she had to work her very first Mother's Day at the local hospital. And so Michael got a great idea. He took their newborn son, Jason, plunked him into his baby carrier, got in the car, drove to the hospital. In front of all of his wife's patients and coworkers, he surprised her with candy and flowers, this giant helium balloon that said, World's Greatest Mom. It was a great celebration. She was so surprised. After a few minutes of 
fun celebrating. It was time for her to go back to work and Jason and Michael to return home. Michael, he gathered up all the things that had been part of the celebration, the candy, the flowers, and the balloons. And you know this if you've done anything like this before. It's not nearly as much fun taking those things out to the car as it was taking them in for the surprise, right? So he sort of tosses the box of candy on the front seat. He got the flowers arranged on the floor so they wouldn't tip over and spill. He carefully pulled the balloons in out of the wind, got everything arranged, and they headed for home. He noticed, however, on the way home that all kinds of people, like every car he drove past, they were honking and flashing their lights at him, people waving arms out windows and so, like all over the place. And he had absolutely no idea what was going on until he hit highway speed on the expressway. And he suddenly heard a very long scraping noise along the roof of the car, followed by a very loud thump. And he looked in the rearview mirror just in time to watch in great horror as Jason's baby carrier bounced off the trunk of the car onto the highway and began to careen across the asphalt behind the car. Michael immediately screeched to a halt. He ran as fast as he could down the highway toward Jason's baby carrier, the whole time imagining the very worst. Imagine how ecstatic he was when he saw that Jason was okay, not a single scratch on him. And as the waves of guilt and fear and utter relief began to wash over him, Michael fell face down on the fast lane of that expressway and began to sob uncontrollably. And we hear that story, right? And there's a little part inside of all of us that says, How could that guy possibly be so stupid? Right? How could that guy possibly be so... I mean, come on. Your firstborn son. What? Idiot. But then there's another part of us that like totally relates to Michael, isn't there? Because we all at a core level recognize this profound ability inside of us to screw up. We know to the core of our being that we very easily could do the exact same thing. Why? Because we're all human. Because we all mess up. And you cross the line from Romans chapter 7 into Romans chapter 8, and this might be familiar territory for some of you. And we ought to be relieved beyond measure at this point to encounter one of the great promises in all of the scripture. Some of you might have this memorized, so now. There's a profound start to where Paul's going here, right? Because all of Romans chapter 7 is this law, sin, grace, freedom, weighty, and he wraps it up by saying, so now. All of that is up there, so now what? There is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. So now, there is no condemnation whatsoever for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Whoa. That's a scripture worth memorizing, by the way. And that word condemnation, what does that mean? It's the result of judgment, isn't it? Which means that condemnation is the sentence that a judge pronounces at the end of a trial. But there is no condemnation. Why? Because Jesus frees us 
from that condemnation. He was sinless. He was perfect. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. And that made God able to offer him Jesus as a sin offering. And Jesus took, get this, he bore upon himself the condemnation of the entire world. That's a lot of condemnation. That's a lot of judgment. That's a lot of pronouncement of guilt. He took it all upon himself when he died on the cross. There is no condemnation, none whatsoever. And our freedom from condemnation only comes about when we step into a relationship with Jesus Christ, when we are clothed in Christ, as the scriptures say. And some of us, lots of us, maybe even, we've stepped into relationship with Christ. We know that verse. Cognitively, it's here. But we don't always feel free from condemnation, do we? Truth be told, there is condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. It just doesn't come from God. Where's it come from? Who's it come from? Satan. That's exactly right. It comes from Satan. As a matter of fact, that word Satan in Hebrew actually means accuser. And that's exactly what Satan does. He accuses you and he accuses me all day long, every single day. Trying really hard to fool you, fool me into believing you are condemned. You aren't good enough. Nobody would ever send their one and only son to die for you. Satan really works overtime to try to trap us into believing that we're so wretched, we're so broken that God doesn't want a thing to do with us. Satan quite wants us to be like Adam and Eve. Remember after they sinned, all they wanted to do was go do what? Hide. They just wanted to crawl under a rock, hide. And we've been there. All of us have been there, if we're honest. We've failed, we've picked ourselves back up, we've kicked ourselves, we've felt condemned, condemned, we've heard the condemnation, and we've done the same thing Adam and Eve tried to do, hide. We've hidden from God. We've turned away from him, not because we don't love him, not because we're not grateful, but because we're just simply so ashamed. We feel like such a wretch. We've listened to Satan, we've bought the lie that Satan whispers in our ear. But live, Christian, Romans 8.1. Stand up tall on Romans 8.1. There isn't any condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You're free. Live free. Be free. Act free. Think free. No condemnation. And because of that freedom, Romans 8.12-14, therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. No obligation. You're not constrained by it. You don't owe your sinful nature anything. Starve it out. You don't have any obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. And let's just roll right into that next chunk, Romans 8, 15 to 17. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. In light of everything that Jesus Christ has done for you, 
You shouldn't have this mindset, this mentality of a fearful slave sort of cowering in the corner. Instead, you received God's spirit when he did what? When he adopted you. When he adopted you as his own. His own what? Children. And now we call him Abba, Father. Another way to say that is Daddy. So now we call him Daddy. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we're God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs, heirs of the most high God of the universe. In fact, together with Christ, we're heirs of God's glory. But if we're to share his glory, we must also share in his suffering. And there, Paul once again is touching in to all our striving, all of the performance treadmilling, all of the flawed metrics, all of the hamster wheeling we do. And he says, look, when you're in Christ, if you have relationship with him, you're a child of God and you cannot earn a higher ranking in the world than being a child of the most high God. Nothing you can do will earn you anything higher than that. He chose you. God chose you. That's frankly the definition of adoption isn't it? To choose and bring into relationship. And Paul knows the weight of that word adoption in Roman culture. He uses it very, very intentionally. See, in ancient Rome, the adoptee gained all the rights, every single right of a biological child. He or she received an entirely new family. The adopted child became an heir to the entire estate. The old life, get this, the old life of the adopted child was completely wiped out. The adopted child was an entirely new person entering an entirely new life, free from every single thing in their past. It didn't matter how deep, how dark, how gnarly it was, free from everything in their past. And Christian, that's you. That's you. You're not a slave. You're an adopted son or daughter of the most high God. And Paul recognizes this incredible truth that we act according to what we think we are, don't we? For example, if we're deceived into thinking that we're not who God says we are, then we're just gonna keep right on acting that way. We're just gonna keep right on living that way. Satan says you're condemned, you buy the lie, you live like a condemned person. But see, one of the ways you break the power of sin in your life is to see yourself as God sees you. When you do, your actions have this amazing propensity to follow suit. See yourself as God sees you, free from condemnation. You're not under it anymore. And then we close out Romans 8 with these incredible verses, 31 to 39. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? What a great concluding statement. If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Take that, Satan. Take that, Satan. Since he did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? Take that, Satan. No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us, was raised to life for us. He is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. 
Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we're killed every day. We're being slaughtered like sheep. No. Despite all these things, get this, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ. Not just like a little, barely won victory. Overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And then watch this. I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Nothing. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. That is one of the most emphatic statements in all of Scripture on the love of God. There's nothing, there's nothing that can separate you and me from God's love. There is nothing that can or will make God stop loving you. He's always loved you from the very beginning of time until right now God loved you, he loves you, he wants to have relationship with you. And there's not a single thing you can ever do to earn that love. It's free. It's unconditional. And you can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't strive after it. It's unconditional. This week I ran across a true story about a 19-year-old American soldier. He went to Korea to serve America during the Korean War. While there he met and dated a beautiful Korean girl. He managed to impregnate her. His tour came to an end and he went back to the United States, never to be heard from again. Well, that beautiful young Korean girl was suddenly faced with an enormous burden to bear all by herself. And nine months later, when her daughter was born, that young lady's family kicked her out of their house, leaving her to fend for herself as well as now her infant daughter. She spent seven very long years being the unmarried mother of a half-American, half-Korean daughter. And then one day she just woke up and said, I can't take it anymore. The rejection and the insults, I can't take it anymore. And so one day she just abandoned her seven-year-old daughter on the streets of the city where she lived. Leaving her all alone to fend for herself. As you'd imagine, that little girl's clothes turned to rags in no time at all. She's homeless, living on the streets. Her meals consisted of any discarded scraps that she managed to scrape up. After a bit of time, that little girl managed to find her way to an orphanage. And it wasn't a good orphanage. It was overcrowded and it was dirty. The kids were not well cared for. But it was certainly miles better than being on the streets. Rejected, all alone. And one day an excited buzz came about the orphanage. Rumor had it that there was an American couple coming who wanted to adopt a baby boy. All the little boys, whether they were babies or not, of course did their best to make themselves look as bright and shiny as they could as they lined up in a straight line on display for the adoptive couple. That couple came in and they went from child to child to child and the whole time they radiated such incredible love. 
You could tell by looking in their eyes that they cared deeply for all children. And if there was any way possible, they would take every kid from that orphanage home. They'd empty the place out. They met all the kids, played with all the kids, smiled and laughed the afternoon away with all the kids, except that one little girl. She stood off in a corner all by herself, convinced that there was not any way that she was going to be chosen that day. She knew that one of her fellow orphans was going to have hope. Somebody that day was going to have a bright future, but it wasn't going to be her. And then like out of nowhere, that American father-to-be saw that little lonely girl standing off in the corner of the room all by herself. He got up from playing with the other younger children and he approached her and he did something to that girl that she had never in her entire life experienced before. He reached out to her, taking her face in both of his hands and said, you, you are the child we choose. You are the one we came for. Imagine that. She was filthy. She was dressed in worse than rags. By her own account, years later, looking back on that day, she remembered she had lice in her hair, boils on her skin. Her teeth were rotten almost beyond recognition. And it didn't matter. It didn't matter. Her new father looked at her and said, you are absolutely precious to me. I accept you just as you are. And my love for you is now, right now. And I don't care how you look. It's you. I choose you. And that, friends, is exactly and precisely how God treats, how God sees, how God approaches you and me. And yeah, absolutely, he looks on us and he sees because he sees it all. He sees all the things that we hate about us, the shame and the guilt and the sin and the darkness, and it doesn't matter because he grabs us and he says, I choose you. It's you. It's always been you. I love you right now just the way you are. Will you take your things and set them aside and I just invite you to move into a time of reflection, thinking on the love of God, thinking on his care for you. Thinking on the truth that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, nothing And as you think on those things, as you reflect with the Lord, maybe you're a person who, you've been a follower of Jesus Christ, you call yourself a Christian. But you're on the performance treadmill and you know it. You're on the hamster wheel round and round and round because you think, I gotta earn it. I got to work harder for it. I got to strive more. Certainly God wouldn't just get... 
And so you chase and you chase and you chase and you chase. Would you just decide today, you and Jesus, that you're going to step into and you're going to live in the freedom that Jesus died to give you. The freedom from the law, the freedom from the piling on, the freedom from the performance treadmill, the freedom from the flawed metrics. Will you just decide, you and Jesus, and just drive a declarative stake in the ground today and just say, I'm going to live free. There's no condemnation. Set that verse into your mind, into your heart. Don't forget it. And then live it. There is no condemnation. I'm free. I'm free. And then maybe there's those of you here today who have yet to be redeemed by that unconditional love of God. And maybe you recognize that this is your day. And I want you to know that you can do that right now. Jesus' offer of love and salvation, redemption, unconditional love. It's a free gift and it stands wide open to every single one of you today. And if that's you, if that's the desire of your heart, you can take that step of saving faith by praying along with me. I invite you to pray with me a prayer that goes like this. God, thank you. I've been trying on my own, God, to approach you, to be good enough, to earn my way to you. And I realize, Jesus, I can't do it. I just need you. I just need you. Thank you, Jesus, for dying in my place. Thank you for rising from the dead. Thank you for setting me free to life and eternity with God forever, starting right here, right now. Here I am. My heart, my life, my everything. God, wash me, please. Make me new, whole. I'm yours. And I love you, Jesus. And that decision to step into saving faith in Jesus Christ today, the most momentous decision of your life. Nothing matters more, nothing carries more weight, and around here it's such a big deal that we like to acknowledge when people make that decision. And this is a private moment. Nobody's looking around this room except you, me, and God. And if you prayed with me just then, would you be real bold and just slip your hand up and lock eyes with me and just say yes. I'm stepping into saving faith in Jesus Christ today, once and for all. The unconditional love of God, you can do that right now. Yeah, absolutely, yes. Once for all, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes, over there, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Yes, and you, yes, yes. He died for you to set you free. No more striving, no more chasing in you. He died for you. And you, you're free. You're free. Jesus, I pray for all of these especially these who are saying today that they're stepping into saving faith in you for the very first time. Jesus, help all of us live free. Off the treadmill, not measured by society's flawed metrics, measured by your standard, measured by your truth. 
measured by your title for us, adopted children of the Most High God. May we live like your kids. May we relish in you, God. It's you. It's only you. And we love you with all of us. Thank you for your freedom. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your hope. It's you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Your freeing name. Everyone agreed and said.